to The Wiggly Path, the podcast where we celebrate the wiggliness of life in all its twists and turns. The road to success, however you choose to define it, is seldom ever a straight line. There are heartaches, regrets, disappointments and mistakes, as well as triumphs, opportunities and moments of epiphany. We have compiled the following interviews to motivate you to take these ups and downs in your stride, just as our guests have done. Please take comfort in these stories of bravery and resilience from underserved communities all around the world. We hope that you find them as inspiring as we do. Happy listening. A candle can light another candle without losing anything. We hope our stories help keep yours burning. I'm Barbara Shaw. Thank you for downloading this podcast of The Wiggly Path. For more information about this program, please visit our website, www.thewigglypath.com. Today, we speak to Linda Fung from Hong Kong. Linda was one of the first women to go abroad in the early 80s, first the Royal Ballet School in England, and then the Juilliard School in the United States to pursue her passion in ballet. Linda shares with us how her love for ballet helped her overcome the difficulties, hardship, and even her father's objection to become a professional ballerina. And also later on, how Tai Chi came into her life, not only to help nurse her injuries from ballet, but also turned her into an ambassador from Hong Kong and brought her onto the international stage. Linda Fung, it is such an honor to have you as one of our first guests. We have known each other for over 45 years now, playing together since we were little kids as neighbors. Welcome to the Wiggly Path. Many children start ballet at the age of four to six, but you started at 11 years old. How did you get into ballet? Hello, thank you for having me on your Wiggly Path. Um, well, my ballet um, adventure is very wiggly because I wasn't, did never plan to take ballet class, but I was. I have this very close friend of mine. Uh, we we go to school, the same school, Marinelle Convent School that we go to in Hong Kong. And every day after school, I'll go to her home and we'll play or she come over to my place and we'll have fun just to continue the school activity. And, and I said, oh, okay, I'll go. And uh, I went and followed her to the ballet class. I looked and the legs, I look at all the movements, I don't understand what these people are doing, why they, all their legs are turned out and they're flapping everywhere. So I just followed and somehow something, I think a few months later, the teacher saw me and gave me the first compliment. I, I think that's a compliment. She said, well done, Linda, that grand back mom is like kicking your leg. It was kicking my leg at the back. And she said, that was very good. I think from that moment onwards, I just thought, wow, this is fabulous. And um, it gave me confidence and encouragement. And it's also something I love. So if you have to put your finger on a point in time, would you say it was this one compliment? Yes. So I think, I think teachers are very important. Um, I, I think a lot of times the children 
I think I just, I was at the right time, at the right place, but not with the right condition for ballet. You thought you didn't even have the built or figure to be a natural, but it didn't stop you. Well, it's very obvious. Ballet is, it's purely visual aesthetics. You know, they have proportions from the head to the length of the neck, to the length of your arms, to your turnout flexibility, how long your legs, your instep, your arch. Very, very demanding. Oh. I, well, I don't care because I loved it and I never thought I was going to be a ballerina. At that time, I was just, I just understood, I found something in my life, I feel. I just want to do this and I was passionate about it. So I was taking one class a week and then I, it grew to seven classes, seven days. I was basically going to the studio seven days a week. So I, I think because I was so in love with it. I am still in love, but I was totally passionate. When did you decide ballet to be something you want to pursue as a career? Well, I, because my father, it just is a very traditional Chinese father. And he really, could not accept me even taking classes in Berlin. And uh, when I knew that he said, oh, you should concentrate on your studies and stop dancing, because I was I was going a little bit far for the one time, he said, oh, I, you have to stop now because you have to concentrate and do your exams and you have to go to university. So I think at the age of, I can't remember, 14 or 15, I can't even remember exactly. I decided uh, with, with my friends, there's a Royal Academy of Dancing in, in London and they organize annual summer camps where you dance, you learn how to not just take ballet classes, you rehearse and you perform. I think in hindsight, I have to thank my dad for stopping me from following my passion and my ballet. It's somehow that rebellious streak in me wants to do it more. It's a very funny thing. But whereas for my younger sister, when my father was too tired, or my mom said, oh, well, do whatever you like and we'll support you fully. Somehow, she didn't sort of have the same kind of resilience as the other three of us. And just when things get a little bit tough, wants to give up. One part I'm filial, I still listen to him. I still fulfill my university graduate um, requirement. But on the other hand, I also have this rebellious streak that I want to prove him a little bit wrong because he was so, he was absolute that dancing is no good for girls. I want to, to tell him, no, dancing actually can be a career and one could actually help to contribute goodness and wellness back to the community. So um, in that way, his being very difficult as actually as, as has um, given me a push, a shove, to actually launch um, more passionate into something, into the dance world, which I, I'm not sure if I would have. And if I finish at summer course, I will not dance any. I went to this camp and overwhelmed by it because we dance from morning, the whole morning, afternoon and evening, we live together. After about last week, they had a master class. They invited this very special lady called Damienette de Valois. She was the founder of the Royal Ballet Company and also Margot Fontaine's mentor. She came to give a master class. 
and uh, they, were, they picked three students mm. and I was one of the lucky ones. Even without the natural built, you were determined. Your passion really motivated you. Exactly, I, you know. Um, so I was in the class and, and somehow that day, it was a, she gave, she was a brilliant teacher. Every correction she gives me, I was able to get it and do it. I can turn, I can balance. It was like as if some, someone is holding me up from up there with a string. So after the class, um, it was a beautiful, wonderful class. Then my teachers came over and say, um, Dame, they call her Dame Lynette, uh, asked you to go to the Royal Ballet School, asked you to join the Royal Ballet School. I didn't really understand what that meant. And I thought, well, I'm actually, I just have to tell you guys, I'm going to stop dancing after this. Uh, this is just a trial for me to experience life as a dancer, which I promised my father. And they just, they can't believe I was talking in this manner, like, I'm going to stop dancing. They said, do you understand what kind of offer you've got? You know, it's very hard to get into the Royal Ballet School and people have to audition from around the world many times. But now you've got an offer to attend the school by Daminette. And uh, I said, no, my dad wouldn't allow me. So somehow at the end of the day, my ballet teacher talked to my father. And um, so I was lucky then I went to the Royal Ballet School the following year and started um, studying as a professional student. And just when I was ready to give up ballet, so that was another wiggly path, and I was very lucky enough to get the, the Hong Kong Jockey Club Music and Dance Scholarship. And after that, you returned to Hong Kong and became the soloist for the Hong Kong Ballet Company for three years. And then you went abroad again, and this time on a scholarship to the Juilliard School in New York. Why did you decide to go back for more training, especially ballet is such a short career? Still, I have to keep my promise because I, I promised my father, I said, if you let me dance now, I will go back to the university. I said, ballet has a very short-lived career. It's very physical. It's very demanding. I dance now, but I know I can't dance in 10 years or 20 years' time. So I must dance now, but I promise I will go back to university. And, you know, even an 80-year-old woman, if they want to, they can go to university. So... I promise you I will go to university, but not now. So once again, he he allowed me to do that. He thought, okay, well, you know this girl, she needs to dance. Ah, so by keeping your promise to your father to get a bachelor's degree, you get to go to New York to keep dancing. Um, so after the Rob Alley School, I came back to Hong Kong, and uh, Hong Kong Ballet Company founded, just founded, so I joined <laughs> for three years. And after three years, I was getting a little bit a little bit um, complacent. Hong Kong art scene is still, they call it, Hong Kong is like, the, um, it's a desert in terms of culture. Desert. Mm. That was 40 years ago. That must have been in the early 80s. You must have been one of the first professional ballerina in Hong Kong. Were you worried about whether you could actually make a living, or worse yet, an injury that may stop you from dancing for the rest of your life? Yeah, I, you know when you love and you're passionate about something, all that goes out of you. 
So after three years, I remember my promise to my father. I said, I will go back to university. But I always wanted to go to New York. And uh, so when I heard one of the New York dance schools coming to Hong Kong to perform, I thought, well, well, it's in New York. Let me audition with the school. And I just knew the school was from New York. And I auditioned with them and they accepted me and also offered a, a, a scholarship. Later on, I knew this is the Juilliard, which is a very beautiful, it's an incredible institution because that's where the music um, institution, the whole, it, it is a university in, in one way. So I graduated with my, with a, a certificate for my dad and said, oh, you know, you must go to university, but it's a full-time arts institution where I learned about music, where I learned about modern dance, where I learned about choreography, where I lived in um, New York at Lincoln Center, where you meet the most unbelievable artists. So uh, that was um, another stroke of luck. I know your family was in the garment industry. And in addition to your study at the Juilliard, you took some courses at the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York. And you were trying to help your family sell garment while you were there. How did you find the time to do all that? We don't have to sleep. You know, when you're young, you just want to maximize all every hour, every minute. You know, you're not watching the shows. You just have to be doing something. Because you're so consumed with passion and just so many exciting things had a robbery experience while you were in New York? My robbery experience, you see, that that is related to the Garmin experience because I, my parents have these, um, they, they made, they did a lot of very special silk embroidery dresses. And <laughs> I decided to say, why don't you let me go around and check out if any of the New York um, companies to buy these dresses. So I, one day I was, I had an appointment to see one of the biggest merchandisers in New York. So I was dressed up and I was carrying about six of these dresses, but I was dressed really beautifully. But um, I remember I had no money because I walked past the St. Paul's Cathedral, uh, the big cathedral on Fifth Avenue and say my prayers to thank the Lord. And I walked in there and I remember two ladies, middle-aged ladies, came up to me and said, oh no, look at all the ketchup on your dresses. So I had these samples. So not only now my back, I was wearing the silk dress, my whole back was covered in ketchup. My, the, the bag of clothes I was wearing was covered in ketchup. And then I started panicking. Oh, don't worry, don't worry. And, and I thought, well, let's, let us help to clean you up. I know deep down, I've been to New York this my first, second year. I know people, you know, you have to be very careful. At that moment, I suddenly panicked. As I turned around, my bag was gone. So I freaked out, not because I chased out money, but because all my contacts was in my bag. So I dashed out. I saw a man whom I saw when I walked in, ran down the street. And then the two ladies who actually helped me said, oh, don't forget your dresses, which I left an altar. Even when I was trying to put the dresses down, I found Mother Mary's altar because I think, I'm in a cathedral. I don't think anyone do anything nasty to me. You know, I'm being quite innocent and naive. 
but of course I can't leave my dress. So I ran and I was wearing high heels, grabbed my dresses, ran down the street and I saw this guy, just, he was running down Fifth Avenue. I chased after him and I don't even look at any cars. The cars are flying down Fifth Avenue. I just knew that they will have to stop if they see a crazy woman running across the street. So I just ran without looking and these cars just were hooting and, and stopped. I chased this guy for five blocks and he didn't know that I was chasing after him. By the time I got to the fifth block, he stopped. I grabbed onto him and he was just about six foot five, very tall guy. And I said, please give him back my bag. I said, this is very important. And he said, Natyande, Natyande, or something. I don't speak English. And he pretended he didn't speak English. And I said, please, please, please. I said, I beg you, please give me back my bag because I really, really, really have something very important. I said, I have no money in my bag. I'm new to New York. And my address is in my handbag. I don't even know how to get home. And this guy looked at me and thought, this woman is crazy. I said, I really, really, really don't know how to get home. And I started crying. And I said, if you don't give me, I said, I understand why you're doing this to me. Because I said, the city, life in New York is so hard. I said, if I'm, if I'm in your situation, I might be doing the same thing. So I said, all I want is to give me back my bag so I can get home. Now I don't know how to get home. I think he, by that time, he can't believe I was crying. I was making a scene. He called his friends. And so he came back to me. He said, okay. He said, I'll give you back your bag. No police. I said, no police. And I just followed him. So we walked all the way down to Rockefeller Center. And um, then we went into a Japanese a store, a bookstore that sells a lot. There's a lot of Japanese tourists. And the two ladies who were at the cathedral, telling me that my dress was covered in ketchup, came up and they both laughed and they said, oh, please forgive us. We're so sorry. We're so sorry. And I'm like, oh. And they, they the man, the tall man, took off the scarf and started cleaning me, all my ketchup after all this time. And they went across the road and brought the bag out from a rubbish bin. And they took it out from the rubbish bin and they gave me back my bag. I was so happy. I can't believe that they actually gave me back my bag. All my cards, everything was there. And I was ready to walk away. And this tall man, this tall Spanish or Colombian guy called me back and said, Lynn. he knew my name was Linda then. He pulled out a $5 note and said, please take this. He said, I am so sorry what we've done to you. So instead of me losing money, they paid me $5. And I walked away with $5 more in my pocket. And I, and I thought, New York is the most incredible place. So that was my introduction to New York. A Chinese girl chasing down a robber in the heart of New York City in the 80s. This story seems to just epitomize who you are. You display the traditional filiality expected of a child in a very traditional Chinese family. You were constantly juggling between your father's wishes and your passion to dance. You seem to have achieved the ultimate balance in hindsight. You see, kill two birds with one stone. Ah. For my father, the bachelor degree in Juilliard. And for me, I can continue dancing. 
and I always wanted to go to New York and make everybody very happy. Perhaps yourself a little happier than your father? <laughs> Linda, you are the eldest of four siblings. You must have been such an inspiration for them. What kind of a big sister do you think you are? I was always rushing off to my ballet class. And basically, I, I don't have any time for my, my sisters and brothers, but all they see when I'm home, they see I'm a very hardworking person, but they think I'm a little bit crazy because maybe it's very hot summertime, 30 degrees Celsius. I would close the windows, turn off the air con. I will dressed in my ballet leotards and I'll put on rubber pants to cover my whole body. And then I put my woolly, woolly warmest all over my body. And I start doing my exercises to make sure I sweat or, or stretch my leg. And they always, I think my brothers and my, my brother and my two sisters always think that my sister's a little bit wacky. Why would she be doing that? Um, but they know that I'm very hardworking. And I think uh, later on when, when I become a soloist at the Hong Kong Ballet Company, or I was working in the TVB, hosting my own dance programs, they realize that actually it's not pure luck that you get to certain stage. Hard work, dedication is part of what you get. So I think maybe in terms of if there's a role model, they see that I work very, very hard at what I do, even though they might not agree with what I do, but they see really it's 1% luck and 99% hard work. When would you say was your peak as a ballerina? Uh, it's very interesting because uh, with ballet, when you're young, this line, so when you you're a teenager, that's when you're around 19, 20, early 20s. But in ballet, we have the artistry. So when you pass the 20s, that when your artistry at its best, it's when your physicality starts to wane. So that point, that meeting point, I would say in your mid to late 20s is when your physicality has peaked, but your artistry through the years of training, you've become a better artist. You married one of the most prominent barristers in Hong Kong, Alexander King. How did you meet Alex? Was it something or rather someone that touched your heart just like ballet did? Everything has to come from the heart. So what we talk about when people ask us, you know, what do you do? I said, I'm at the bar, he's at the bar. So I'm at the ballet bar, he's at the legal bar, but we meet at the drinking bar. Tell me about your encounter with Tai Chi. It seems to be something that happened at the right place at the right time. Well, I think I'm quite a physical person and I've always enjoyed training the body. But it's of course, it's a mental, physical thing, but I've always enjoyed that discipline getting up every day and working with the body in a very focused way. So after my dancing days, I realized I've accumulated enough injuries to cause so much problems to my body that I um, should pursue a more um, healthier wellness lifestyle. But the main thing is actually, I think it's my, my son who changed my whole perspective about life, 
because I realize that uh, once you have your own child, then you start thinking about a lot of the priorities in life. I've been a very westernized girl. I, ever since I was young, I, I, I love classical music. I love the ballet. I love the art form. So I took French when I was in high school. I wasn't interested in Chinese. I find Chinese very, very boring, very old-fashioned. Um, the ideas do not sort of, it's not my cup of tea. So I married a Westerner. So my life all along for the first 30 years of my life, I've been a very Westernized girl. Until when my son was born, uh, we decided on the education. I, I realized that no matter what, he's half Chinese and he should study Chinese. So um, when he started learning Chinese, I, I realized that what they were teaching is a two-dimensional Chinese, which you can maybe speak, um, converse in very simple ways. You can read a little bit, write a little bit. Not the three-dimensional, it's not alive, not the Chinese um, immersion, which I think is more important when you understand how Chinese people think, how Chinese people because the language is the end result of how your thought behavior is. So I thought in this generation, my son, he must, he must study, he must learn Chinese. He must not only learn the traditional Chinese classics, but he also should be in a place where he learns the, something of a kind of Chinese Kung Fu for, for exercise. As a boy, you know, we need it to be balanced. Uh, the academic way and also physically. So after trials and errors, when I found many schools in China that um, that were not right until I found this place called Tianzhenyuan, Tianzhenyuan, where this is a traditional Chinese school based on firmly rooted in Tai Chi philosophy, uh, founded by a master with 60 years of experience in martial arts and Tai Chi philosophy and a Chinese scholar. And when they opened this school, it was just a new school when we found it. And uh, so there were only about 20 students and the maximum number of students they took was 30 students on a 100 acre organic farm where they grow their own food. The children will practice Tai Chi, Chaolin, Wuchu, martial arts in the day and they learn Chinese classics. And uh, the madame was a scientist, so she was able to with a modern way of thinking but based strongly on the foundation of Tai Chi. So we decided to take a gap year to go to send him to Beijing. Uh, this place is in Beijing, in between outside of Beijing, and uh, send him to this tough boarding school. One of the turning points was the teachers, the master and madame, uh, they, they told the parents of the school they believe that parents and students both study. It's not just a child who should be studying. As adults, we must continue to learn because in Chinese classics, we're not talking about academic knowledge, like you learn math or a language. In the Chinese studies, you learn all these classics about life, uh, life lessons, wisdom. So I, I listened, I, I followed, and the master said, Linda, you should start studying and learning as well. And so I started studying the Chinese classics. I started taking Tai Chi class daily. 
I do a little bit of Shaolin, and I was teaching English at the And I have to say, um, without my son, I would never, ever, ever, ever have ventured out to a organic rural farm in China. As I said, I was never uh, a firm uh, believer or, or a lover of the Chinese uh, traditions. How interesting. So it was for your son's schooling that you discovered Tai Chi for yourself. And it could not have been better timing in terms of finding a sport that allows your body to heal while keeping active. A lot of people consider Tai Chi a sport for more mature people. Would you agree? Tai Chi is not a set of uh, movements or exercise for old people moving around in the park. Because that, that's usually the old connotation that people when they say, Tai Chi, oh yes, when you, you retire, you're very old, then you go to the park and start. When you can't move and can't do aerobics, then you sort of do Tai Chi. In fact, Tai Chi exercises, we call Tai Chi Chuan, is one aspect of Tai Chi philosophy. So the exercise part is one part of philosophy. That is uh, the moving movement part. Tai philosophy talks a lot about yin yang and balance. This philosophy applies to the, the universal law of nature. And when I started studying that, both in a um, in physical way, where I apply the Tai Chi technique in the movement form of exercises, breathing, and how I apply the principles of yin and yang and harmony into my life, I realized that, wow, this is incredible wisdom uh, for wellness, not physical only, but it's a mental, physical, and spiritual good. Um, that was very interesting because that was the same year that um, my husband was diagnosed with a brain tumor when we went to the school. Only a few months after we we arrived at the school, when my husband was diagnosed with um, with this illness, and that even reconfirmed my faith in um, believing and practicing wellness for the rest of my life. I was, I think. Uh, at the right place at the right time, um, even though my understanding and practice of Tai Chi is very limited. But I think my role was uh, really like an ambassador. With my language skills, I'm able to translate some very profound esoteric terms in, in the traditional Chinese Tai Chi vocabulary and make it uh, understandable even for laymen who, who has no experience in uh, this philosophy but they never understood that profound yet simple philosophy, which is incredible in applying, particularly to today's chaotic world. So Tai Chi, uh, this tour actually, it was fascinating for a lot of uh, the students, the professors and the Yale community, because Tai Chi to them normally is just a form of exercise. But they realize this is actually in, in, it's, it's a, it's a worldview, it's a philosophy of life. It talks about harmony within oneself, between your family and your friends, how to achieve harmony and balance within your community, your job, 
um, and between countries. So they were taken back. So every movement actually behind, there's a lot of wisdom. For example, we, we talk about the five organs. Some gone page by some. Your heart, your lungs, your spleen, your liver, your kidneys are the main important organs in the body. But we call the five elements correlates with the five organs. The five elements, actually, these five organs also contain the five virtues of virtues. We talk about virtues. Yang Yi Lai Ji Sun, benevolence, etiquette, uh, faith. Very important virtues contained in our organs. So when we start talking about these traditional Chinese culture of how one's integrity is linked with wellness of your organs and how when it's balanced, this is how you achieve wellness. It's not just through eating or exercise. It's how you behave. Um, so I think this is quite an interesting um, tour for for us and and at Yale so we we got many more invitations around the world at working with different um, of, of you have briefly touched upon how you met your late husband I still remember Alexander very well he was such a charming intelligent and articulate person and wherever he went he would light up and fill the room and then he fell ill. That was possibly at the peak of his career. You stayed by his side as his health deteriorated and helped him fight his battle until the very end. You were young and fit as always. It must have been a very difficult time for you. What can you share with us about your experience and how did you manage to stay steadfast in continuing your own life journey without the love of your life by your side? Watching a healthy, um, strong person deteriorate into a state when they're very ill and immobile is a very challenging period. I am very blessed that I have studied Tai Chi last decade. Now I think back in hindsight, why was I interested in studying uh, about life and death and about illnesses, about attachment. All the studies I, I have, I really now, when, when I think the final acid test is when you face death, not just watching it as a third party, you watch your loved ones going through step by step towards death, unless you have a very profound understanding about life and death and impermanence it could be very suffocating and difficult so when when alex was diagnosed with brain tumor so straight away it's okay what can we do we understand that life is impermanent and we all have wait one day or another how we do this how do we handle this so we took a very pragmatic approach towards this first but the journey of going through watching someone slowly deteriorate, uh, particular is a brain tumor. It, it is, it is very challenging because when you start losing man, mental faculties, which affects 
his is a spatial awareness path. His brain is was functioning incredibly well, except there's a certain spatial awareness. But it really is, um, I, I keep counting my blessings because with my uh, study of Tai Chi, which is about life, is about impermanence, is about balancing the yin and yang, um, and the philosophy of Buddhism, impermanence, uh, life, death, illness. This is all part of life. It has really given me a lot of strength to walk through this with almost feel, you, you feel that, yes, we can, we understand this and we must move on. So he has been my greatest teacher of how when we are going through facing death and how we can still retain one's respect and one's positivity. And when he was in ICU, he was still cracking the most amazing jokes with the nurses and doctors. I said, how can you do that? You know, when I'm retired, he said, you know how hard nurses and doctors work in the environment? If we can bring a smile to their face, isn't that a wonderful way of lifting someone else's spirit? So it has. he has been a most incredible person, even till the end, that the positive attitude no blame, understanding, taking on, and just appreciate that you've had a good life. And so that's why to me, looking after oneself, the mental wellness is the most powerful. Our mental mindset can actually make us ill. So that's why the mental wellness is the most important part that will manifest into physical wellness. So in Tai Chi, the teachings of that is actually many folds that physical wellness is very closely connected to our mental wellness. And that's why staying positive, staying healthy, and being grateful that what we have every day is a way of lifting one's spirit. So I would say, yes, it has been a, a tremendous challenge for me, but this is also a lesson, a great lesson for me to learn, to appreciate life, to really appreciate health and wellness. And you are now a ballerina turned Tai Chi instructor. I love teaching. I have a group of Tai Chi cousins. I have many groups of Tai Chi cousins we call the Tai Chi family. When we start practicing together, we help each other, we come very close. When I see transformation in the students when they start doing the exercise, I'm only um, mediate, uh, I'm a communicator. I just teach them the exercises, but when they do it and they feel the changes within them, it is very gratifying and, and it is very important that I feel I'm in my smallest way, I can help people to become healthier. And when they become healthier and happier, the family members become happier. We just need every one of us to to just spread that energy and expand that energy uh, as much as we could. So I, I love I love sharing my limited knowledge with anyone who's interested. You're a beautiful ballerina, a Tai Chi teacher, an amazing wife and mother. Linda Fong, you radiate elegance no matter what you're doing. And you always make it look so effortless. 
but there's so much hard work and perseverance behind. It is such a pleasure to have you on our podcast. Thank you for sharing your weekly path with us. <laughs>